Are you ready for good talk? Welcome to Friday. Welcome to the uh, first Friday in December. And you can almost feel those approaching holidays and the holiday break for, uh, for programs like Good Talk. But not before we have a few more things to say in the next couple of weeks. Chantelle Bear is in Montreal. Bruce Anderson is in Ottawa. Okay, we're going to start with something new. Um, for the first time since the end of the uh, kind of testimony phase of the inquiry into the convoy. Um, we have some data in terms of how Canadians reacted to that testimony, and I guess to Prime Minister Trudeau, who was the last witness uh, on the stand. That was all last week, but now we have some data getting some reactions, and the interesting part will be, did it really flip anybody? Did it change anybody's minds about what they uh, what they had witnessed and how they felt about this whole thing? Um the polling data is being done. The research is being done by Abacus. And we just happen to have the chair of Abacus with us. And that, of course, is Bruce. So uh, give us the headlines. Are there headlines in this new data? Well, when people ask that question, often they're wondering, well, what something, what, what, what dramatic new thing has happened in public opinion? But sometimes uh, no news is is news anyway and the uh, idea uh, as i look at the numbers is it, first of all if those if there were a lot of people who thought the commission was going to be um, the trigger for unraveling of public support for the government and put them in a much worse situation electorally that that evidence isn't in our data essentially we're seeing the same kind of voting intention numbers uh as we did a month ago um I think, on the other hand, if liberal partisans were looking for some evidence that the prime minister's testimony or the overall weight of the evidence presented during the commission was going to lead to some catalytic rise in support and enthusiasm for the government, that's not there as well. I think that there is a little bit of evidence that those who followed the hearing most closely came away with a slightly better impression of the prime minister. I wouldn't want to overstate it. The differences are significant but not overwhelming but i think i think the really important takeaway for me is the reminder that people don't uh really think about what happened months ago as part of how they think about what they would do in an upcoming election they're focused on their everyday lives they're not that focused on politics and when it comes to the next election they're going to look at What's on offer? What are the changes? What are the people on offer as leaders? And what are the ideas on offer in terms of the platforms of the party? Uh, what kinds of things are they championing? And right now, the liberal numbers are not where they need to be to win another election. They're a little bit behind uh, where they would uh, have been uh, in the last two elections, basically. And the problem area for them regionally is BC right now. They're uh, uh, they're not running where they need to be in the province of British Columbia in order to reassemble the same kind of coalition of support that got them uh, first past the post overall in um, in 2021. So the basic headline then: no damage, but but no bump up either. Uh, that's right. That's right. I think the you know the idea that this this whole hearing was going to be a huge price to pay as part of using the Emergencies Act um, didn't turn out to be the case. Uh, the, this the government did not take any uh, any water on because of what people in Canada heard through this hearing. Um, whether they came away feeling um, happier that the Emergencies Act was invoked, I don't think that's true. But I don't think that it was ever plausible that that would be true. Okay, uh, Chantel, uh, as Bruce said earlier, you know, no news is still it's news. good news for Pierre Poilievre. Right. Who could have been damaged by the exercise, could have been demonstrated to have been totally irresponsible by not denouncing the occupation and, and the convoy and, and being associated with uh, the anti-vax movement and some of its less savory uh, elements uh, and walks away from this exercise intact uh, with uh, uh, good numbers 
and competitive numbers in places where he needs them to be and a small lead on the liberals. So uh, if I were the conservatives, I'd look at this and I'd say, well, uh, that was good. <laughs> at the same time, I believe that Justin Trudeau's performance in particular, uh, probably uh, Bruce says those who followed most closely tended to have a favorable impression uh, of the prime minister uh, and the government's decision. That includes the Liberal caucus, and I do believe that uh, Justin Trudeau's performance last week was a shot uh, up for the morale of the caucus and the party at a time when it was sorely needed, where where there was a sense that maybe Justin Trudeau wasn't in it anymore uh, to win, uh, and that they weren't too sure how uh, the party would would fair under the leadership of a distracted leader. He was anything but distracted. And I note uh, that Bruce's uh, numbers show that the Liberals are uh, most challenged among the larger provinces in BC. And there is an irony in that because it is the only province of the major provinces, Quebec, Ontario, Alberta, BC, where Justin Trudeau is actually not uh, in a, in a bad or a, a, an adversarial relationship with the premier, uh, the, the recent uh, conflict over the notwithstanding clause with Doug Ford, what uh, usually happens between Francois Legault and Justin Trudeau on a variety of topics. We'll talk about Alberta later. And that seems to suggest that uh, just because you're friends with a popular government in BC, and I think the NDP is still fairly popular, a new premier, uh, the prime minister is there today for, for, for kind of a meet and greet meeting. You, it kind of means that the opposition to the provincial government coalesces against two federally. It, this this kind of uh, we don't put our eggs in the same basket federally and provincially in BC may be playing against uh, the, the the liberals. It's also interesting that Vancouver and BC is where Pierre Poilievre went to say he would. Uh, put an end or reverse the policies on safe uh, injection sites uh, for drug users. This is one province that pioneered the concept, but it's also a concept that has created its share of opposition for uh, all kinds of reasons related to the perception that it has not resolved the opioid crisis, which is a perception that is not borne out by facts, but still is an impression that you can easily have if you're walking in some uh, neighborhoods uh, of the larger urban areas of BC. Do you want to add to that, Bruce? Yeah, I did. I wanted to pick up a point that uh, Chantal raised about the conservatives and what they could take away from the uh, from how this uh, this hearing process went. Um, I think I agree with Chantal that um, this turned out to be all right for Pierre Polyev if the alternative scenario was that people were going to be hearing him continue to say the kinds of things that he had been saying during the February convoy and trying to relitigate his position uh, in favor of the protesters and against the government and against vaccination mandates. Uh, but he didn't do that. Uh, and so the learning that they will take from it is partly that um, if you just try to hide out a little bit, um, journalism isn't always going to find you and demand that you answer these questions which are awkward um probably that's a that's a a thing that the liberals will observe too that if they're going to try to make the ballot question be a little bit more about Pierre Polyev in the next election they're going to have to do some very active effort uh to make that be the case uh because it would have been reasonable to have more of a conversation i think surrounding the uh, the hearings about uh, the role that conservative politicians played in stoking uh, some of the animus back last February. But there wasn't really any of that. Um, but I think uh, more tellingly, because I think it's part of how I see Pierre Polyev conducting his leadership politically, he's being uh, pretty strategic, I think, overall, to avoid uh, being visible on the things that would be unhelpful for him to be visible about. I think that the uh, the sensible thinking conservatives who are trying to make sure that they're very competitive as they head into the next election are watching signs like the midterms uh, in the U.S. and saying too angry is uh, unhelpful uh, and uh, and that 
the way to win an election in Canada, especially, is to present a conservative uh, party that is the the vehicle for change for the largest number of people. And that includes people who don't want to flip the table over, who don't want to hear a lot of talk about um, being angry about the use of vaccinations uh, or the, you know, championing cryptocurrency uh, or firing the governor of the Bank of Canada. Those are not the kind of rallying cries that grow conservative support in those swing ridings, especially in urban and suburban Canada, where they need to grow support a little bit to feel really secure about the chances of a victory. So I think there's a lesson learned for them uh, in uh, the virtues of not campaigning like um, Pierre Polyev did for the leadership or like Danielle Smith did um, in her uh, race for the leadership and observing that a conservative brand will do better probably if it looks more like the uh, the alternative to the liberals rather than the alternative to the People's Party of Canada. Well, Pierre Polyev must have been listening to both you and Chantel uh, in his head somewhere over the last week because at least from what I watched this week of uh, his performance in, uh, in the House of Commons in question period was that he stayed out of the convoy lane and he was solely in the lane, uh, once again, of what I saw, solely in the lane of, you know, inflation, interest rates, um, Bank of Canada, all those things um, that were not the convoy, but may well be what's on the minds of the uh, of the average Canadian. So, you know, I mean, we'll see how it plays out. And the first, uh, you know, I know, Chantel, you're working on a, a piece on this for a later column, so I don't want to infringe on that. But there is a by-election coming up on December 12th, and I'm just like, you know, we tend at times when we cover by-elections to sort of overstate their importance or their relevance or their impact. Uh, but this one, you know, well, let's face it, it, it is the first kind of test of his leadership. It's a liberal-held riding, at least at the moment. Um, it's in that key kind of 905 area around Toronto. It's in, uh, I think, Mississauga or one of, one of the Mississauga ridings. Um, how important is it, like, the, what happens in that riding? Well, it's more important than if this were a by-election taking place in a non-winnable riding for, for the Conservatives. This is a winnable riding. They held it. It's called Mississauga Lakeshore uh, under a different name. Uh, they won that same riding in 2011, the year that Stephen Harper won his majority government, which seems to suggest that this is a riding that the Conservatives win when they're doing well nationally. Uh, one of those bellwether writings. Uh, they are also competitive, and they were competitive uh, over the three times that they lost. The, the Liberals won big, uh, over 40%, but the Conservatives were always close to 40% uh, in, the, in the high 30s. So this is not a writing that they, they have no shot at. It's more important, this, the outcome of the, 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 this by-election will not really change the makeup of the House of Commons in any way, shape, or form. But it will uh, send a signal to, to the Conservatives, if they win, uh, that they have a winner, uh, someone who can take seats away from the Liberals in places where they need to take them. Uh, and this is a place where they need to take them. I would suggest that uh, it's interesting for another reason, and it is going to be testing the, the Pierre Poilievre's contention that the voters he needs to reach, uh, he will not need to reach by uh, going through the mainstream media. If you look, and I have looked uh, this morning at the uh, what's been, you know, the, the conservative candidates Twitter site, which is always a good place to find out how much help a local candidate is getting, even if you don't see a lot of publicity. And you can see that a lot of caucus members have been campaigning uh, with the conservative candidate. You can also see that Pierre Poilievre has been spending quite a bit of time with the candidate. Going, It's a very diverse writing, so going to a variety of large-scale um, ethnic galas of all kinds, religious events. They want this writing. But he also wants to win it on his own terms. And on December 12th, we'll see if that pays off. By the way, turnout in by-elections, and Bruce knows this as much as I do, is usually low. Hmm. And there's a, a bit of a, 
a strange thing happening in, in Mississauga Lakeshore, the Rhinoceros Party, in case you forgot it existed, has decided to make a statement about electoral reform by making this the longest ballot in Canadian history. And so they have fielded and confirmed more than 30 candidates. <laughs> that means that people who are going to go vote in, on December 12th, or right now as the, the advance polls are opening, are in for a shock. It's going to run like the list of kids in your son's grade nine. Uh, and you have to find the mainstream candidates in there because uh, it, in 30-some names on a ballot, you need to search long and hard. The Liberals, I should add, also want the writing, and they are running the former finance minister of Ontario, Charles Souza. So I think despite the lack of you know, high-profile events, uh, both parties really want to play for keeps on this one. Do you want to add anything on by-elections, Bruce? Yeah, I think that this is a classic kind of situation where, um, you know, it might be more normal to expect that uh, an opposition party would pick up a seat where uh, where the scenario has been as close in this writing as it has, as Chantal described. Why? Because voters sometimes just like to send a little bit of a message to uh, to the incumbent government, not necessarily, uh, you know, one where they're saying we really want to change the government, but saying we want we don't really feel like we want to go out and cast a vote for the status quo. And so that tends to create a situation where there's a little bit more water flowing towards the uh, the opposition parties and the principal opposition party in a in a by-election in a scenario like this. So then that takes you to the place where um, the real question, because Chantel's right, it, it doesn't really change the way that Parliament will operate in Ottawa, is how does it affect the chemistry and the confidence level of the parties and the leaders? And I think uh, I agree with Chantel's earlier point that the Liberals took something really positive away uh, from Mr. Trudeau's performance or appearance at the uh, at the commission hearing. Um, and obviously, if the Liberals were to win this riding, uh, that would also make them feel like, OK, this is this is better than perhaps we had expected, even though, as Chantal said, they have a they have a high profile candidate. Uh, if the Conservatives win, they will feel kind of reassured, but not necessarily surprised, I suppose, is how I would uh, I would look at it. Um, but the other thing that occurs to me, and I was sort of watching a little bit of, uh, I was looking at uh, Mr. Polyev's Twitter feed, and I noticed that he's doing interviews with um, uh, people like the True North uh, kind of media channel. And Justin Trudeau doesn't have an analog to that. Um, and part of the challenge, I think, for the Liberals is that there is no um, series of specific outlets that are really good at targeting the kind of voter that Justin Trudeau needs in order to uh, uh, to assemble the coalition of voters that he does. Um, on the other hand, for Pierre Polyev, there are uh, media outlets that are pretty good at uh, reaching the kind of voters that uh, he wants to have turn out and cast a ballot for his party. That's a thing that I think uh, progressive parties and maybe centrist parties will need to figure out how to invent something like that um, because uh, not because mainstream journalism isn't doing a good job, but because those platforms don't reach as many people as frequently as they used to. And what replaces them is a question of uh, not just kind of public interest from a media standpoint, but political operation uh, for parties uh, that try to uh, that try to secure those votes. The uh, the thing that I heard the most kind of reaction to coming out of the uh, Mr. Trudeau's appearance was a comment that I, I made to some people about um, a lot of people are used to seeing Trudeau in a scrum or in a press conference, uh, both of which uh, tend to be bad scenarios for him in terms of him being able to communicate effectively or a town hall where it's a little bit performative and and, um, and not not all that appealing sometimes. In the context of the appear uh, uh, of his hearing appearance, it was long form, it was thoughtful, it was expository, it was explanatory, it was the things that people don't get from him in those other scenarios. Is there a way that he can replicate that um, more generally? I don't know, but that's probably what I'd be looking for if I if I work for him 
uh, and was in responsible for those kinds of things. Okay. A couple of points here. Uh, I don't want to be Pierre Poirier's voice, but if he if he were sitting here, he would say, why would uh, Justin Trudeau need True North when he's got the Star and the CBC? about friendly uh, outlets that are well attended by progressive voters in any event. First point. And I'm not going to qualify that contention because I tend to believe personally that there are as many conservative voters that Poiliev could and should uh, be winning over by going on mainstream media outlets. I'm not big on the notion that you go to friendly media outlets, but I also think that what you describe as a, a format that allows the prime minister to look intelligent rather than glib, as the commission did, uh, is called long interviews with, uh, as leaders did with Peter back in the day. And as you well know, the prime minister's office has a permanent list of requests for those long interviews uh, with media that are more than happy in French and English to give him the time to look and explain uh, his ideas in a format that does not come across like a 30 second clip in an adversarial setting. So it is basically up to the PMO to decide that they want to give him more of that kind of exposure. It is not that he lacks the opportunities, it's that they have decided that they don't need to do it. The um, It's interesting to watch what some of the con- conservative politicians both federally and provincially have been doing uh, in in terms of this you know who's interviewing them and what form of interview it is because if i'm recall correctly the only major interview that Poliev gave um uh, during the campaign was with uh, professor peterson um and in english in french he's been doing the more regular mainstream okay. interviews all right uh, and the same for danielle smith she just did one with him uh, in the last week or two now you know the danger with doing interviews with him is it often comes off as his this is the peterson philosophy to the uh, to the world more the more than the the person being interviewed but nevertheless um that is a that is a route they're taking um and it it seems to be working for them. Um, I mean, we'll see how that plays out over over, over time. Um, but you're right. I, I don't see the long form interviews in the way they they used to be. You know, going back to uh, you know Bruce Phillips and Peter Deborah and the, you know all all of those through the 80s and the and the 90s. And you know, and I was lucky enough to have some of those myself, where all parties did them. Um, and uh, you know, it was an opportunity for Canadians to see. Uh, see people or see their politicians in a certain way. Now, my last point on by-elections before we move on is Churchill used to say by-elections are like fire on ice. And when you think about that term, it actually does describe most by-elections. We get a lot of heat around uh, the result and we, we assume certain things that don't necessarily play out. But sometimes they do. I remember when Deborah Gray one for the Reform Party uh, in Alberta. Gilles Duceppe for the Bloc Québécois. Gilles Duceppe. When those happen, people said, well, you know, it's kind of a one-off. It's just a by-election. doesn't necessarily mean anything. And then, boom, we know what happened as a result in both those cases. Uh, You know, there are more examples the opposite way, but things can happen as a result of by-elections. Okay, we're going to stop, take a quick pause, and then we'll come back, and the topic will be Alberta and sovereignty right after this. And welcome back. You're listening to Good Talk on the Bridge on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, and on your favorite podcast platform. And because it's Friday, it's also on our YouTube channel. Um, So let's talk... um, Let's talk Alberta. Uh, you know, when Doug Ford did the notwithstanding clause uh, dance a couple of weeks ago, many of us thought, man, there's never been a blunder as big as that on a, by a provincial government. Uh, and he had to backtrack within, uh, you know, a few days. Well, it's taken Danielle Smith 24 hours not necessarily to backtrack, but to say, hey, listen, my Sovereignty Act, I'm willing to listen to amendments, you know. 
um, the opposition can come forward with uh, whatever it would like to do to uh, to amend this legislation. Now, that always happens for any piece of legislation. There's the opportunity. But that she's gone to that point already. After looking more than a little bit flustered in her news conference on the day that she dropped the Sovereignty Act, um, it seems to have been, I mean, it's hard. It's, you know, I've, I've searched looking for where's the defense of what, the Alberta government has done, and by Alberta columnists, Western Canadian columnists, national columnists, there's not, and, and constitutional experts, it's pretty hard to find anybody saying, "Hey, yeah, this is the right thing to do." Um, where are was this like blunder number one on the part of a, a you know a new provincial government? Um, well, or it was, can't be blunder number one, considering that Danielle Smith, since she won the Conservative leadership, has been going from blunder to blunder to blunder. The uh, most discriminated against people on the planet in her lifetime uh, are people who didn't want to be vaccinated against COVID-19. That's quite a definition of persecution. And she's accumulated them. This is... I. I fear. I feel for the professional serv- civil service of the province of Alberta, which exists and is a sturdy civil service, that someone somewhere will one day be known as the 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 author on the orders of that government of that piece of legislation. But I would argue that over the past couple of days since it was brought in, the two the two best case scenarios for. Uh, Daniel Smith's government have come and gone. The first best case scenario was the obvious one, and it would have been Justin Trudeau jumping on the barricade with a bazooka to shoot down that piece of legislation, paving the way in the process for an election campaign in Alberta where Daniel Smith runs against Justin Trudeau. Sadly, the prime minister is going to be missing in action by his statements until the election is over next spring. Uh, And so he's not going to come to the rescue of this government. The second best case scenario that has gone out the window is the notion that the NDP and Rachel Notley will in any way, shape or form have the conservatives across the aisle dig themselves out of the rather uh, big constitutional mess that they have dug themselves in. Uh, Because the NDP position in Alberta basically is... This is your mess, and we will take no part in it. Just withdraw the bill, go home, and come back some other day uh, to run the province and, and deal with priorities. So absent those the improvements, what Daniel Smith is left with is having to live with her own legislation, which some of her ministers did not bother reading before they voted for and are now saying, well, that's not exactly what it says. Well, yes, it is. Uh, and it, but since there is a conservative majority in Alberta, this bill will likely become law. This is even worse for Danielle Smith because then she's going to have to show something for how it works. And everyone is impatiently waiting to see how exactly this is going to work and how it could in any way, shape or form make uh, Alberta better, uh, help its economy, or actually uh, make it an attractive place to invest. Bruce, you're up. You know, I remember that the around the time of the uh, heightened talk about Quebec separation over the years and the Sovereignty Association, there was a fondness for using a marriage metaphor to describe what Quebec was looking for in terms of the relationship with the rest of Canada. And I don't remember exactly who said it in what way, but it felt to me as I was reading the revised name of the bill um, that it was essentially saying uh, permanently unhappy, but not moving out bill. Um, And if we think about what that really does for the conduct of public policy, is it kind of, it's an attempt to entrench a level of friction in a relationship where, you know, most people don't really think that friction is productive. Um, I think this is the problem with these kind of firebrand candidates, whether they're from the left or the right, is that they they see the 
the fire brandiness being the thing that got them to where they are and they don't know how to give it up. They don't know that it isn't the thing that will take them to where they say they want to be after that. I feel like the, uh, I'm glad Chantal raised the question of the professional public service because I agree that Alberta does have one um, and I've had a chance to interact with it at different points over the years that I've been kind of doing the work that I do. Um, And I can't help but be a little bit dismayed that uh, with weeks to prepare this piece of legislation, not only was there this giant political miscalculation and this shambolic political organization, um, by which I mean that the, the premier didn't really seem to know what bill she was representing and her cabinet didn't. And she had all these people who'd sort of said, this is the work of the devil uh, um, and you must not choose her as leader. And then they stood beside her. And even though they didn't really know what they were defending, the political management of it was brutally bad. Uh, But the professionalism associated with a piece of legislation like that shouldn't really be ignored here. And I'm not looking for who's the individual, but I do think that there would have been several senior individuals who would have had to look at this piece of legislation. And I'd be shocked and dismayed if they didn't say, Premier, this is not correct legislation. Uh, Not only is it unconstitutional and it will be challenged and we will lose, uh, but it's not, it's not, correct legislation. uh, There's so many flaws in it that that's what you have a professional public service for in many instances is to take a political idea and to turn it into a workable piece of legislation that isn't going to be essentially DOA when it's tabled, which is what I think has happened to this. And so the professionalism broke down. The political calculation has been pretty near disastrous from the beginning. I agree with Chantal that this is This is far from the first major blunder. This is uh, a kind of a blundering, uh, almost Liz Trust-like kind of start to the the term of office of uh, of Danielle Smith. And she's going to find that the supporters of her party um, are going to be uncomfortable with the way this is going. But more importantly, those voters, especially in um, Calgary and Edmonton, who are thinking, well, you know, maybe we won't need the NDP after all. Um, this has been a good week for Rachel Notley. Uh, it's been a good week for the idea of, you know, maybe it is time to to change again because the UCP doesn't look like it has uh, a focus on the right issues and the competency that you're looking for in the office of the premier. Just before we move on, Chantal, uh, with your next point on this, I, I just want to say something about the public service Um Issue Because I think many of us tend to forget this. Many of us, you know, sort of in the audience and and journalists as well, tend to forget that there is a, you know, a significant size public service behind all elected governments. And their job is to, you know, to try to put forward legislation um, that fits with what the government uh, had promised the people and to do that in the most professional way and to raise the red flags when the, when those are necessary. I can remember sitting with Michael Pitfield, the former clerk of the Privy Council in the Pierre Trudeau years, um, in his off year, which was 1980, when when Joe Clark, uh, you know, had won the election in, in 79. And uh, Pitfield was at Harvard, teaching at Harvard. And I went down there to talk with him because he'd never really given interviews before. And I wanted to talk to him about the public service and work in the public service. And I said, well, like, like how far does that, you know, um, that support go in terms of preparing a, a government? I mean, at what point, if you are you know, against the idea that you've been asked to put forward, um, can you go? Do you go? And he said, look, you, you always have the option. You make the arguments against something, and then if you still can't win and you feel firmly and personally uh, uh, challenged by it and uh, against it, you quit. That's your option. And, you know, you can quit quietly or you can quit publicly and uh, you, you know, and, and make that case. Um now, we don't see that happen very often, or at least we don't see it happen in the public light. I'm sure people have left the public service in both federally and provincially over time because they didn't feel like what they were doing uh, was was correct, what the, what the government was doing was correct. Um, 
you know, I, I have a bit of a conflict on this because my father was a, in, in the senior public service, both in Ottawa and then was one of those recruited by Peter Lougheed to Alberta uh, in the 1970s, where he was in the, uh, in the healthcare area uh, as uh, chief deputy minister of health. And, you know, he used to talk about the, what he saw with Lougheed, who was a premier who had the file on whatever that file was, knew it completely. Uh, you know, did the interview with him for the job. Um, and and then every time he had brought anything forward, he had to ex- sit in front of the premier and defend it, what he was putting forward. It seems to me what we witnessed this week, and we've witnessed elsewhere, so I don't want to just single her out, but what we witnessed with Danielle Smith was somebody who was clearly one of those in that government who didn't fully understand what was in her own legislation. I mean, she she couldn't defend it and eventually backtracked on it within the first initial opening news conference. Um, I don't know, says something about her, says something about her leadership, says something about, you know, the public service uh, that had uh, prepared it and briefed her. Um, uh, nevertheless, uh, I think it's a good uh, point. But how much briefing uh, that the, this cabinet uh, take when it, I think it's what a dozen pages this bill and you've got senior ministers saying they haven't had time to read it uh, in any serious government. And I'm talking provincial governments here, but also federal. A bill that is so central is something that you get briefed on and that you master. You can't go around saying I didn't read the bill. That would be like. Uh, François Legault's uh, minister saying he didn't read Bill 21 or Bill 96, but that's what we're doing, uh, kind of thing. No civil servant, as far as we know, resigned uh, over the past week, but someone did resign, uh, and that is Jason Kenney. Within minutes of this bill being brought forward, uh, he resigned his seat uh, in the Alberta legislature. Now, I don't think that Jason Kenney resigned to go in a monastery to take a vow of silence for the next six months. Uh, He seems like he still has a lot to say, and he has never had a second of time for shares uh, Rachel Notley, the NDP's position on this bill, which is that it's an abomination that should never have seen the light of day in the legislature. So I'm curious to see what he will be saying. But if I look back, because we are closer to the end of the year now, and I look back to what has been happening to the conservative movement in this country, the fact that Jason Kenney and the province that is ground zero of the conservative movement at this point, and that has provided it over the past decades with a lot of its intellectual energy, Peter Lougheed is one, but Preston Manning, uh, a lot of the ideas, Stephen Harper, the Clarity Act, balanced budgets, those ideas were born in Alberta backrooms of conservative uh, parties. So th- this is a province that has provided Canada with serious uh, ideas. But if Jason Kenney is not comfortable enough to sit or, or be with a party that he recreated and brought to government, who will be? Uh, was my question. And where is the conservative movement in this country going? Where are the serious conservatives these days? Uh, and at what point do they stop biting their tongues collectively? Bruce? Yeah, I just wanted to pick up a couple of points, um, Peter. I do think that Jason Kenney has some scores to settle. I think he's entitled to feel as though the things that Daniel Smith said about him uh, and the the kind of the slings and arrows that he had to endure. Some of them he had kind of earned, but some of them were a little bit over the top, I think, in terms of the uh, the way in which uh, people went at him. Uh, he, fair or not, he will think of himself as a smarter, more capable person than Daniel Smith, no question about it. And I, I think it would be hard to argue against that. Um, uh, but I, I agree with Chantel. I don't think he's decided that's the end of him in politics. I think the choice of the timing um, uh, of his departure was very deliberate. It was very intended to be a calculation of how to make a statement upon leaving that you could use subsequently when you want to talk about politics, which brings me to the second point, which is I think that the the fuel for conservative success in Alberta in part is uh, an anti-Trudeau, anti-Ottawa sentiment, but it's also 
in part a the problem with liberals and new democrats is they don't understand how the economy works and i think the most trenchant for some people criticism of the permanently unhappy but not moving out law is in that area of what it sends as a signal to the investment marketplace around the economy there are many 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 businesses in alberta that uh, value the idea of a stable and predictable uh, legislative and economic policy environment and they're going to be hearing from jason kenny and others that that is not what danielle smith is offering that her permanently unhappy but not quite moving out law is going to be a recipe for continued uncertainty about whether there are going to be expectations around carbon emissions inclusivity and uh, diversity in the labor force um those questions because of the uh, of the lack of diligence that went into this law are going to be exacerbated and they're going to be used by uh, smith's opponents to say she only knows one setting which is a radio hotline show host who hates you know ottawa on your behalf and we need somebody who will help us build the next version of the alberta economy and she's not that and i think that's going to be a more uh, a powerful criticism in some markets in, in Alberta than she may have taken uh, on board as an idea. All right. You really love that phrase, eh? That new name for the act. You're, you're really into that. Well, you know, it's just a, it's just a podcast. <laughs> What's the worst that can happen? That's I still think its actual name is even better. It, it reminds uh, Quebecers of uh, Yvon Duchamp's famous line about uh, that Quebecers wanted a, a, a strong Canada, a strong Quebec within a united Canada, uh, which <laughs> is basically, which has basically been the rule. I have always also struck this week that, uh, you know, in Quebec, sovereignists and nationalist politicians have a lot of appetite for what happens elsewhere. Uh, and, you know, you'll find that the pro Brexiters uh, in Quebec were often uh, from that that side of the political spectrum, but I saw no one that said, "Go, go, go, Alberta, and we will follow you down that path." Not happening. <laughs> it's just not on. All right, we're going to take our final break. Then we can, when we come back, we're going to talk about the king, the real king. Well, depends which king. Meant some people think the real king is Boreas Alming. Other people think the real king is Charles. And it's the Charles King that we're going to talk about when we come back right after this. And welcome back. Final segment of Good Talk uh, for this week. And for those of you who are wondering about the Boreas Salming references, it's a Toronto thing. Okay. He was a great defenseman uh, in the NHL, passed away. Uh, a, a hockey player. Side. A hockey okay. player. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. But he was a great a great defenseman and was incredibly well-loved in, uh, in this city. Uh, and when he passed away, the city was in shock. He died of a, uh, ALS. And, uh, you know, there's been a, a lot of discussion about that in the last week but his his nickname both on the team and amongst the fans was the king okay that uh, that is not the king we're talking about here now uh and Chantel, you're going to start us off because this is uh, on the whole issue of the king and the king's relevance in canada uh it takes on i guess a new dimension of sorts this week in in the uh, quebec national assembly so explain it to us it was inevitable that there would be uh, new questions about the links to the monarchy uh, between Canada and the monarchy in Quebec and the monarchy uh, after the Queen passed. Uh, and for those who aren't totally aware of how different Quebec is on the, uh, some of the rituals in Parliament that we see in other provinces, it has been decades since the lieutenant governor has read what is called elsewhere the speech from the throne. In Quebec, the lieutenant governor attends what is known as the opening speech, says nice words, and then the premier reads the opening speech, as it is called. 
but you still, to sit in the National Assembly, have to swear allegiance to uh, the king now. And at least two parties, Quebec Solidaire and the Parti Québécois, uh, have been wanting this changed. In the case of Quebec Solidaire, they brought in legislation that ultimately was not debated in the last National Assembly to make it optional to swear allegiance to the king. This time, just the election has just taken place. The three members of the Parti Québécois declined to swear the oath. Uh, yesterday, showed up to take their seats in the National Assembly, were turned back by the sergeant at arms because it is the law that to take your seat, you must swear allegiance. But the government is now bringing in a bill to make the oath optional. It, that bill is going to be passed with all party support, uh, the liberals who initially had reservations and now decided they do not want to die a little bit more by making their first battle in the new National Assembly about keeping the monarchy uh, inside the place. And so by the end of next week, probably, uh, there will be a, a new uh, law in Quebec that says that you can take the oath if you want, but it's optional. Me, I think this will probably have some echoes on Parliament Hill, not tomorrow, but after the next election, because it's really difficult to see how the Bloc Québécois, having been part and parcel of what's just happened, could come back after the next election. And I'm assuming there will be Bloc members re-elected uh, next time Canada goes to the polls uh, and swear an oath to the king or not bring the issue up in uh, that kind of a way. And the reason why I think this goes beyond, you know, the photo opportunity of having people who are MPs being told they can't sit is because there are inside the House of Commons on the benches of other parties, people who are thinking that this should become optional. And I'm going to name Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the NDP, who said he's uncomfortable with, uh, with the oath. Uh, I'm going to uh, not name, but uh, point to indigenous uh, members of parliament, be they in the Senate or the House of Commons, who are not comfortable uh, with having to swear an oath to the king, or Acadian members of parliament, whose biggest memory of the crown is that they, their ancestors were deported uh, taken away for their, from their communities and spread across the globe uh, by the crown. So it's not a discussion uh, Justin Trudeau wants to have, but I believe that it awaits the next House of Commons uh, one way or another. Bruce. Um, well, I think that I could, I could write the speech that Justin Trudeau could give to say, we want to move to make this optional in 10 minutes. Um, I'm not sure I, I, I think Chantel's right that it's not necessarily a conversation that Justin Trudeau is looking for, but neither should it be something that they spend a lot of time on make it optional. It's, it's kind of, it, you know, if people want to do it that way, then let them do it. But certainly the idea that anybody would defend this, this way of stating, you know, affirming your, your uh, integrity or trustworthiness, there are better ways to do it. Um, this is a legacy item that doesn't have a counterparty in the fight. Uh, I can't imagine for the life of me that Pierre Polyev would decide that he wants to say, no, 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 we can't make it optional. I mean, he's the anti-gatekeeper, the anti-establishment conservative. He's. It would be hard, I think, for him to decide to take that on. Uh, even though his predecessors uh, in that job probably would have been very tempted to. I suspect that his political acumen is such that he would say um, optional is optional. And then uh, people who want to take that oath that way uh, can continue to do that. So I agree with Chantal. I think if it happens in Quebec, it'll happen in Ottawa and it, it won't happen uh, in a way that necessarily divides parties. So I think that um, there won't really be that counterparty that says, King Charles and the and the British monarchy is so important to our sense of uh, institutional well-being and history that we need to keep it that way. You know, uh, 
what I, I I've enjoyed this uh, little part of our I've enjoyed this whole hour, but I've enjoyed this little part because I learned something here um, that I didn't know and I probably should have known. Uh, but Chantel's description of what happens in the National Assembly uh, on Speech from the Throne Day um, was something I hadn't realized that the um, Lieutenant Governor gives a kind of brief overview and then the uh, First Minister, in, in this case uh, Premier Legault, makes the speech outlining the government's intentions. Now, you know what? That's the way it should be. That's what it really should be because speeches from the throne, whether they're the provincial level or the federal level, are written in the premier's office, right? It's their words. And and this, you know, the, the, the governor general or the lieutenant governor or whomever um, ends up then, you know, reading those words. This way, the way it's done in Quebec I like that. I, you know, I think that's good. I think that's something that maybe perhaps should be uh, incorporated elsewhere. Or, uh, and it would save Mary Simon from having to practice her French so publicly. <laughs> well, we've seen a few situations like that o- over time, uh, both French and in some cases uh, to some degree English. But it, it, to me, it's a, you know, it's a much more honest way of dealing with that day. Uh, instead of, you know, what, what have so often been, there have been very, let's face it, there have been very few governors general at the federal level who've made that day interesting uh, in terms of their uh, performance uh, out of uh, one of the throne seats in, in reading the somebody else's speech. Um, anyway, it's something. Well, to- our work here is done because, you know, Chantel and I live for that moment when you say, well, I learned something here today and this has been just a great conversation. Thank you both. It's and, only uh, taken two years, but I did. I learned something here. Today. Finally. <laughs> uh, listen, thank you both uh, very much. As always, it was a, you know, a, a, a good program. And as I said, looking forward to a couple more before we take a break over the, uh, the holiday season, there will be, We'll do a, a kind of um, a last show of the year, you know, the, the best hits of uh, 2022 um, uh, before we take that break. So that's all coming up in the next little while. There'll also be another uh, Moore Butts conversation program, somewhat similar, but from a different angle uh, before the holiday break as well. So thank you to Bruce. Thank you to Chantel. And thank you to you, our uh, listening audience here on uh, Good Talk for this Friday. Um, I'll be back next week. Um, all all through the week, Monday through Friday next week. So um, thank you for that. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again on Monday. Mm-hmm.